Bible Geek here again to answer some Bible questions. But first, let me give you some good news. It appears that the Ehrman Price debate is back on, thanks to the sponsorship of Mythicist Milwaukee. Probably be uh, in the fall, I guess. Uh, and uh, Or is that the fall of the next year? I'll get it straight. The details aren't quite worked out yet, but it should be a lot of fun. And uh, I trust you'll be able to follow it or hear it afterward or something. But at any rate, let's get to some questions. Mary Elizabeth Sarks says, uh, Luke 2 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee to enroll himself with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him as wife. Why are an unmarried couple traveling together in this way? I'm guessing that in Galilee back then, control of the woman did not pass to the husband until after a marriage ceremony. Yet Luke basically describes Mary and Joseph shacking up, traveling to the census together as if married but not married. If Mary and Joseph were going to play house, would they not have got the marriage solemnized first? And if if they were not married, why would Mary have been census counted with Joseph rather than with her father? Well, uh, I think the whole thing is unhistorical and filled with weird contradictions and historical implausibilities, and I'm not even getting to the possibility of miraculous conception. But there's two uh, things that mitigate the problem here somewhat. Some manuscripts speak of Mary in this passage as Joseph's betrothed, his fiance, <clears throat> uh, and others speak of uh, her as his wife. Uh, so, you know, which did it originally say? But the other factor is, even if they were simply betrothed, that was a bit stronger than an engagement. Uh, it, to break such a betrothal, you would have to go through something like a divorce. It wasn't quite the same category we have. And the... Um, <clears throat> And and so great was the uh, strength of even a betrothal that in Judah, the um, the, the custom was that uh, the betrothed couple could cohabit before the um, the marriage ceremony whatever it was, we don't really know, uh, and uh, without any uh, any sin, that the ceremony would just be kind of a formality. Now, we don't know if that was the case in Galilee up north, <clears throat> excuse me, at the time. Our sources just speak about it in Judah, and the reason for this was they were afraid of women being uh, bothered or raped by uh, Roman troops, and this afforded more of an opportunity for the, the 
uh, the engaged uh, male to uh, protect her. Um, let's see. Uh, now, th- th- this is still c- more complicated because, as you know, the two nativity stories of Matthew and Luke differ over where Mary and Joseph lived. It's less of a problem in Matthew where they live in Bethlehem and Jesus is born in their home. And it's only after a hasty trip to Egypt that they come back and move to to uh, the Holy Land and then move up north to Nazareth in Galilee, where they have not previously lived, whereas in Luke, they live in Nazareth and only go to Bethlehem for this impossible taxation census and uh, then come back. Uh, so it's um, it's it's all fiction, basically. Uh, of course, you'd expect some verisimilitude, right? But um, the... Uh, possibility that the same custom obtained up north as it did in the south um, mitigates that as does the notion that some manuscripts have Mary as his wife already so it's not like there's a smoking gun on this but of course even if you can get the story if you can get the evangelist out of this jam uh, there are plenty of other problems with the census and so on that uh, really rule it out as history Anders in Stockholm says, <clears throat> you mentioned in your podcast of um, uh, 15-038 that God seems to be talking to other gods in the Garden of Eden story. For example, Genesis 1:26. then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. What do you think of the argument that this is an older grammatical form used by kings and rulers, the royal we, as it is sometimes called? I don't buy it. <clears throat> uh, the uh, the thing that kills that really is um, in Genesis 3 when uh, uh, Yahweh Elohim says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And uh, that that pretty much destroys that. It it just shows that, yeah, they are thinking of more than one God, which is also what I think it means in the priestly creation account in chapter 1, where it says that um, Elohim said, let us make God in our own image. And uh, so he created um, man, Adam, in his own image, Male and female, he created them. I think that just has to mean that there were gods and goddesses, and that's why there were males and females. Boy, I find it so annoying when politicians and, strangely, missionaries use the royal or editorial we. Well, we're planning to do this. Yeah, yeah, you and what army, buddy? Uh, But what the heck? All right, um... Next, what do we got here? Yeah, David, an unbeliever from the Missouri Bible Belt. Okay, Dave, thanks. I've heard you address the subject of faith and the size of the mustard seed. My problem with these examples of comparing the size of objects to faith, be it mustard seeds or elephants... 
What does that mean, to have little faith? I don't get it when Peter sinks under the water and is rebuked by Jesus for having um, little faith, but then later is quoted as, uh, as saying that the mustard seed size of faith, assuming that's a small amount, can move mountains. Uh, how can faith be measured? Can it be mathematically expressed, such as a percentage? Is it the expression of a probability? Having more faith increases uh, what? The likelihood of its having some effect? So how can little faith not keep you from sinking when walking on water and at the same time move a mountain? I guess it just fails to make sense to me when faith is spoken of as if it were some kind of entity of quantifiable substance. I can only perceive faith as either you have it or you don't. To me, if there is doubt, then there is no faith. Can you offer any enlightenment on this question? I have faith that your response will be interesting and not and not satisfy everyone. You're probably right about the latter at any rate, Dave. Uh, I actually sort of think that the mustard seed thing, if if you had only that much faith, that that, that does mean, look, you've got it or you don't. Do you think that if he wants to do it, God can cause what you ask to happen? Uh, you do or you don't, right? And... Um, I think that may well make a lot of sense. Uh, when Jesus says, uh, where is your faith? That's another indication. I mean, he says that in a similar context. Forget where exactly. Uh, very similar to, um, oh, you of little faith, or as Muhammad says in the Quran, scant is your faith. It's like, what? kind of faith do you have you you it's trying to point out you say you believe but obviously you don't you might say it's kind of like in the epistle of james uh, uh you say that god is one uh, good for you the devils believe and tremble uh yeah they're they're right but they don't have faith exactly john constantine was sort of like that in the movie constantine you don't have faith john uh, you know he knows too much it's sight not faith for him um i i think however that there is also the implicit idea that uh, kind kind of like in uh, in uh, oh uh, the empire strikes back when yoda you know him, remember, ruined film, did I not? Um, when, uh, or was his name Fozzie Bear? I forget. Anyway, uh, he is uh, upbraiding Luke, who is trying to lift his uh, X-Wing fighter out of the swamp. Uh, and he says, I can't do it. And he says, there is no try. Do it or not, do not do it or some such thing. Well, that's kind of the idea that uh, you don't have to work up the faith. Or this is what Morpheus says to Neo. Uh, don't try to do it, just do it. It's sort of a Zen thing. Get your head in there and accept the fact that this is going to be done. Uh, so uh, if you... Uh, and the idea, it's hard to tell whether it's the idea that is being argued against or <laughs> the thing that Morpheus is advocating. It's a little slippery, but it's like Green Lantern and his ring. 
uh, anything he can imagine, he can make happen with the ring. There's a great scene in uh, Grant Morrison's um, story arc, uh, DC One Million, when the Justice League is in the remote future and they're trying to stop the sun from exploding. And Batman says to Kyle Rayner, the, the young Green Lantern who's replaced Hal Jordan, uh, he says, uh, you've got to encompass the sun uh, in a construct from your ring. And uh, and uh, Green Lantern says, I don't know if I can do that. And he says, you can just do it. Like if uh, if he doubts, he doesn't have enough faith to do it. Faith healers often say, oops, you didn't get healed. You must not have enough faith. It's like working up faith. Uh, and and uh, that does seem strange to me, but it's like magic. If you can get yourself, if you can will yourself to believe hard enough, which is a kind of a strange double think, right? If the will to believe, then it will happen. Uh, like... Uh, uh, another example from the gospel would be the right after the transfiguration, Jesus' uh, disciples are being the complaint department. This guy brought his son, who's a deaf, mute, epileptic demoniac, uh, to them to be healed, and they can't do it. And um, Jesus uh, approaches him and says, what, what's going on here? What's this all about? He says, oh, Rabbi, I brought my son uh, to your disciples, but they, they couldn't cast the demon out. And Jesus says uh, to all of them, uh, how long do I have to put up with you? A great, great scene. And um, uh, he says uh, to, to the man, all things are possible to him who believes. And then the guy says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, he, he does. He wouldn't have come to Jesus if he didn't think that uh, this was his answer. And yet, it's a hard thing to accept, like the guy walking on water, right? I mean, you know, oh, you have little faith, why would you doubt? Oh, I don't know, a little thing called gravity, right? It's a little hard to get past your senses. I think, by the way, that is the most profound statement on faith in the Bible. Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. Somebody knows it's not a simple prospect. I always like to point out, who said this profound statement of faith? Was it Jesus? Was it some apostle or prophet? No, it was just some guy. Very significant, I think. Here's another example on uh, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes, Spectre of the Gun, where an alien puts, uh, oh, I think it's Scotty Chekhov, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy down in this stage-setting version of, of uh, I don't know, was it Tombstone or wherever, wherever, the, wherever the OK Corral was. And uh, the Earps and Doc Holliday come gunning for him, and they contrive to make these knockout gas grenades. And uh, they get the chemicals and all that and put it together, and um, one of them says, well, let's try it. And uh, Spock says, well, there's no need to do that. We got the right chemicals. We know what'll happen when they mix, etc. But let's test it anyway. And uh, Scotty inhales it deeply. Nothing. 
and uh, oh, it didn't work. And Spock says, you, you don't quite grasp what's happening here. It must work. It has to work. You can't change the immutable laws of physics. What this tells me is that um, we are being... Uh, shown a false reality here. We're being fed hallucinations. This this is not what it seems. I know that is true uh, because I know you can't change the laws of physics. So I know that when the herbs and Doc Holliday come a shooting, uh, the the bullets are simply illusions. They will not harm me because they cannot harm me. But if you think they will, then, uh, you know, kiss your butt goodbye. Uh, and uh, and I think it's McCoy who says, yeah, but I think you're right, but we don't have the total logic of a Vulcan. There's always going to be an element of doubt with us, and that would be enough to kill him. And so Spock does the mind meld and communicates to them his absolute logical certainty, and sure enough, the bullets just go right through him without hitting him. I sort of think that's what's going on. If there's a modicum of doubt, it's like an Achilles heel, and you're supposed to get yourself to the point where you say, look, can God do this or not? I mean, he might not decide to do it, but that's another whole issue. Um, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the Babylonian guards, our God is able to deliver us from this, the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to your idol. And now that's a perfect example. I don't know what God will do, but I know what he's able to do, so I'm not afraid. Uh, so I think that's, uh, that's an example of, of a kind of doubt that doesn't kill faith. Now, I'm sounding like a preacher here. I, uh, I think of faith in a different way than I think the, the Gospels are doing it. I, I kind of, well, I kind of like the Hebrews 11 idea of faith as doggedness. You're just not giving up on the thing. Uh, but at any rate, I think that's some of what's going on. The little faith is... Uh, is is a, a metaphor for saying, yeah, you, you tell yourself you believe it, but do you really? And the fact that he can say, if you had only a microscopic amount of faith, that would work wonders. Uh, that's, uh, uh, as like, don't underestimate the power of faith because it's not your power anyway. Right? So I think it, maybe it does boil down to saying at its most consistent uh, that uh, God can do it uh, or not. Do you think he can or do you think God is impotent? Well, no. Well, then what are you worried about? Um, so, hmm. hallelujah. Okay, um, this is from, if I can read this, uh, Borzu Tolui, I think that's right. I am listening to your Genesis study series from 2008 on YouTube at the moment. I have to say I really enjoy them and have learned a lot uh, about them. I am in part three, and there were a couple of things about the names that struck me, so I wanted to share them with you if you don't mind. Never. You mentioned Osama and Uthman, like the Caliph, are the same root name, but that doesn't seem to be true. Osama has Aleph, Sin, Mem, and means lion. Uh, Uthman is Ein uh, uh, Th. 
in Arabic cognate to shin in Hebrew and mem and means a kind of bird if I'm not mistaken. I am Persian so I know the alphabet and some roots of Arabic words but not all of them of course. I don't speak Arabic. Also you mentioned Enosh and Enoch might be different versions of the same name but in the original Hebrew there's little similarity. Enosh is indeed man cognate with ish in Hebrew for man and ens or ensar, uh, ensan in Arabic for human. But Enoch is chanuk in Hebrew, meaning dedicated or initiate, and is of the same root as Hanukkah. The Greek and Latin versions look similar, but that seems to Enosh and Enoch, but that seems to me to be an accident, a false cognate, right? Is there a source that relates them together that you know about? That would be quite cool to know. By the way, Esau being described as hairy seems to me to be most probably a pun, too. Hair in Hebrew is... My glasses are giving me trouble. Se'ar, uh, and Mount Seir was, I think, a holy mountain for the Edomites. Is there anything in this guess of mine, do you think? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think you're exactly right on the, the punning with Esau, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I appreciate your your uh, correcting my speculation about Enosh and Enoch. It was just based on uh, ignorance. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I'm probably just inferring the uh, the uh, identity of Uthman and Osama. So I'm uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's just the same thing. My uh, groundless inference. So I appreciate that. Um. Uh, the uh, it does seem like, according to the guys in the Encyclopedia Biblica. That no, that Noah and Enoch were the same uh, name originally, the same character. But then again, I'm taking that on authority. I do not know uh, Hebrew myself. Thank you very much. Speaking of names, you got a great one. Hey, Jake in Kansas. There's a funny scene in The Simpsons where Reverend Lovejoy says, Everything is a sin. You ever sat down and read this thing? Technically, we're not allowed to go to the bathroom. It seems unlikely that the Bible really goes that far, but is there anything even remotely similar in the Bible? Are we allowed to go to the bathroom? Um, I don't know if he's thinking of, of something in the Pentateuch where it's describing the rules for living in the camp uh, where the tribes are all gathered around the uh, the tabernacle. Which just is really impossible. It's, uh, it's a kind of a fantasy. But it says that since you're centered about the holy place, that uh, if you defecate, it's like a pooper scooper law. You got to take it out of the camp and bury it. Uh, and uh, that seems highly unlikely. And But you could get away with saying that because nobody in the time uh, in which these laws were written and to be uh, to be read lived in such proximity to a holy place uh, so this is just a kind of an extrapolation of what it would have been like uh, in this imaginary situation the tabernacle appears really to be just a literary retrojection of the temple of solomon 
which in turn, I think, was a literary creation retrojecting the, the Temple of Zerubbabel into the past to give it a holy pedigree. Okay, thanks, Jake. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from Reuven. On the most recent Bible Geek, August 10th, the question was asked regarding African Jews, especially the Lemba, who are known to the West exclusively for an alleged connection to Jews. I thought I'd write a response with information on the Lemba as well as, quote, other, unquote, African Jews. To begin, the Lemba are spread across four countries and number at least 50,000, the vast majority following Christianity or Islam. West Asian ancestry among the Lemba is not in dispute. However, the most recent research from the South African Medical Journal had this to say. While it was not possible to trace unequivocally the origins of the non-African Y chromosomes in the Lemba and the Remba, this study does not support the earlier claims of their Jewish genetic heritage. The researchers suggested a stronger link with Middle Eastern populations, probably the result of trade activity in the Indian Ocean. The Lemba should therefore not be considered African Jews, at least not when compared to the Beta Israel, Ethiopian Jews, and the Falash Mora or Beta, Falash Mora slash Beta Abraham, Ethiopian Jews who converted within the last few centuries to Christianity. These groups are respectively 150,000 um, and then 50 to 150,000 in number. Unlike the Lemba or the various recent Jewish movements in Ghana, Nigeria, etc., these are Jews with Israelite origins and are not converts or assimilated Jews. While there is a distinct and fascinating Ethiopian Judaism, the Lemba only built their first synagogue this year in May. Ah, thank you, Reuven. Sure appreciate that. Um, this is from Zach, the microbiologist. Sounds like the name of one of the disciples, perhaps. Um, uh, uh, see, I had a few questions to contribute to the rain barrel. I've been listening for about a year now, but uh, as this is my first time writing in, I thought I'd share a bit about my journey. I'm writing from the swampy college town of Gainesville, Florida, home of the Gators. I attended the University of Florida, and I'm about to complete my Ph.D. in microbiology. I was raised Southern Baptist, but found Methodism in the waning days of my Christian faith. I'd currently identify as an agnostic atheist. I greatly appreciated your book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. It was the first critical examination of an apologist I had ever read. It was, like most most of your works a very approachable and thorough treatment of the subject. Since then, I've branched out and read many books by authors, including Margaret Barker and Richard Carrier. Critically examining the Bible has become a bit of a hobby for me, and I appreciate your book recommendations and, of course, the Bible Geek podcast. Thanks for helping me to embark on this splendid journey. Hallelujah. I agree. It is a great, great uh, hobby and a great intellectual quest. Growing up, I collected many strange ideas about the Bible that as an adult I am realizing none of my other recovering Christian friends have heard. I was wondering if you could address two of them. 
First, a fellow geek recently asked about the King James Version of the Bible. It reminded me that I was taught in my private Christian school that William Shakespeare helped to edit the King James Version. This was used to smuggle the Bible into literature classes. In this school, the Bible made many appearances in diverse subjects, including biology and American history. This Shakespeare as editor of the King James Version theory was supported by the observation that in the 46th Psalm, the 46th word from the beginning is shake, while if you start counting up from the end of the passage, the 46th word is spear. Shakespeare was 46 when the version was published, and this is alleged to be a signature. An internet search on the subject finds many apologists passionately arguing against this notion. Personally, I find it a bit silly and am still embarrassed to admit I believed it, but if apologists are railing against it, it makes me curious if it might hold some truth. Have you heard this idea taught before? Is there any solid evidence in the structure of the plays versus the Bible for the idea that Shakespeare was involved? I don't think so. I mean, he's sort of in the right uh, place at the right time. It's not uh, impossible or implausible, but I don't think there's any real evidence for it. I don't think he ever mentions it in a letter or anything like that. We do know some of the translators, and I don't think he's one of them. But this this oddity that you mention, I've, I have heard this many times, but it's simply impossible because... Um, he couldn't have built this in because the thing's a translation. Uh, shake and spear are translations of Hebrew words that are in the thing. It's not like something that an English translator could gratuitously add to the thing. I mean, it's got to be in the Hebrew or it ain't going to be in the English translation. So it's just a kind of an oddity and a funny one. I believe it is true that Tolkien had something to do with the English style of the Jerusalem Bible. He was an English Catholic, and they produced that. Well, the English version of it. The, it was a French uh, translation to begin with. Uh, second, on to something completely different. I was taught as a young teen that the Twelve Disciples were young rabbinic school dropouts. I'm not really sure what the point of this observation was, but my pastor seemed to think it was a critical fact about the disciples. I believe the idea was that these boys had failed out of rabbinic school and had not been selected by a rabbi or pupil, so they had to get real jobs. Of course, rabbis did that too. And that's where Jesus found them. Jesus used these rejects as his chosen disciples, and so I suppose the lesson was that Jesus can use anyone, even dropouts. Ever hear Alan Sherman's hilarious song, uh, The Dropouts March? It's great. As a result of this belief, I always found depictions of the disciples as roughly the same age as Jesus to be strange. Does a reading of the Gospels give us an idea of the age of the disciples? Have you heard of this theory or teaching before? Are there any church traditions related to the age of the disciples? There is nothing to suggest this uh, in the Gospels, uh, this thing that they were ruined rabbinic dropouts. Uh, that, I don't know where anybody gets that. I've never heard of that. Uh, as to the age, it's uh, it's been suggested that the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was inferred to be John, son of Zebedee, uh, was 
younger than the others and that he might even have been the young man or the child that Jesus set up in their midst and says, uh, whoever will not uh, turn about and become as this child shall never enter the kingdom of God. But that's all just pure guesswork. I think that comes from the, the, um, the perceived difficulty with saying that the Gospel of John, which everybody in the early church admitted was written about the end of the century, uh, was could be the work of a disciple of Jesus uh, who followed him 70 years before. And they said, well, uh, the only way that could be is if John were a kid at the time. But that's that's just a, an escape hatch. Uh, there's There's really no no suggestion of how old any of these guys were. Thanks, Zach. Um, this is uh, from uh, Dr. David Perlmutter. He says, uh, uh, in this article, uh, he gives a a uh, link, but I'm not going to get into that, about a visual image of Jesus uh in the 4th century, from the 4th century, is described as early. That sounds wrong, sort of like saying a movie made about Queen Elizabeth I in the 20th century is an early depiction. How common is this uh, front dating of earliness? What do people call late or early? Is there a middle as well? Have such traditions changed over time among scholars? What do you think is early for documents related to Jesus? Um, well, usually in scholarly lingo, they seem to mean it, that it uh, could be traced back to, let's say, the mid-first century or even possibly earlier, like the way apologists love to think of the list of appearances in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11 as early. Uh, or Mark uh, can be called an early text, even though in that case they mean about 70. Uh, with, uh, with this uh, picture of Jesus thing, I think there probably is more latitude because it's like uh, very early on there weren't depictions of Jesus that we know of. And it uh, probably started right around the 4th century. And so this might have been one of the first ones. I, I suspect that's what they mean, not that it is early in the sense of actually capturing the likeness of Jesus, possibly being based on eyewitness recollections. I think they do mean given the range of uh, when Jesus was being depicted and in different styles, like the early uh, earliest depiction of Jesus is makes him sort of a beardless youth, similar to Apollo, and perhaps modeled on Greek depictions of Apollo. But uh, there, I think they do mean just uh, relatively early, not absolutely early, as in real close to Jesus. But they probably do. I mean, I'm not familiar with the history of art on this, really, but I'm guessing they would say there are early and middle and late periods and all that. Um, I should think uh, that uh, with gospel dating, those who say Mark is around 70 and John is around 100 would certainly say Matthew and Luke are mid-range, though uh, uh, that gets tricky, as I've suggested before. I think they 
try to uh, shove all of them to as early a date as possible for apologetics reasons. Uh, let's see here. This is from Michael Davidson in New Hampshire. I appreciate your scholarly and unconventional commentary on the world's most populous religion. As a religious skeptic, I've always doubted not God, but mortal man's claims about God. More recently, this vague doubt has coalesced into a formal rejection in the form of a trilemma. As you know, C.S. Lewis looked at the Gospels and said Jesus must be one of these. Lunatic, liar, or lord... Uh, Bertrand Russell looked at Christianity and said God must not be one of these, omnipotent, omniscient, or omnibenevolent. I'm neither the writer Lewis was nor the philosopher Russell was, but I also have a trilemma. Christians say God, one, loves mankind and cares for our eternal fate— Two, has issued rules we must follow to avoid damnation, and three, possesses the absolute power to instantly and unambiguously convey these rules to each of us in ways that would stupefy the most imaginative sci-fi author who ever lived. Yet we are told that he gave his good news only to a dozen illiterate fishers and herdsmen in a remote desert tribe. We are then asked to believe he, in his compassionate power, oversaw the oral transmission, error-prone transcription, and fallible translation of contradictory gospels leading to divergence and schism. It seems clear to me that any deity that does exist must either not love us as Christians claim, not have made rules for our salvation, or not have the power to tell us his rules. What do you think? Yeah, I think you got yourself a pretty persuasive argument there. It's kind of like the uh, argument of uh, against God's existence from evil and adversity. If you, if the whole thing depends on God having revealed himself so you don't have to worry about dubious human speculation, then uh, uh, why is it not so clear what the path to salvation is in the, the supposedly inerrant, infallible revelation? I mean, Martin Luther said, oh, yeah, it's understandable. Uh, the perspicuity of Scripture um, and you can just keep saying that, but you'd never have all these uh, divisions and disputes if that were the case. Uh, and uh, you, you, if it was necessary for God to vindicate his, and authenticate his revelation by miracles to begin with, why is it no longer necessary? The whole thing just seems like an after-the-fact bunch of spin to me. I, I just think that it falls apart. And uh, I mean, you wind up having God saying, you got to believe this stuff, even though there's not sufficient reason to believe it. And if you don't, you're going to be damned, which means you've got to sell out your integrity. That, to me, seems like losing your soul in the uh, attempt to save it. So I think you're right. Hmm, let's see. What do we got next? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, a little long... Sam in Cambridge, England. Oh, let's see, back to the top of it. Uh, I know that Jacob and Esau are representations of the moon and the sun, respectively. 
Jacob is a smooth man like the moon. Esau is hairy like the rays of the sun, and is born bright red, reminiscent of the sunrise. They struggle to supplant each other even in the womb. Jacob wrestles a mysterious stranger who must leave at sunrise, presumably in the original myth to return to the sky. Jacob has twelve sons uh, recalling the signs of the Zodiac, and his descendants are numerous as the stars of heaven, Genesis 26.4, obviously a promise to Isaac, but fulfilled through Jacob. But what about the passage where Jacob steals Esau's blessing? Here it is in the new RSV, Genesis 27, beginning with 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Uh, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, uh, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father, and said, "Uh, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I I am Esau, Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, "Uh, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to eat Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Lon Chaney's, uh, Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son, Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Uh, Now, I've been able to find lots of information about the idea that Jacob and Esau, the moon and the sun, and so forth, but I haven't been able to find anything suggesting an idea that I find irresistible that this passage is based on what happens during an eclipse. 
Jacob wears Esau's clothes and puts on hairy goat skin over his own smooth skin. Isn't this depicting the hairy rays of the sun that can be seen in an eclipse, visible from behind the smooth moon? Surely this is an eclipse myth depicting the moon stealing the role of the sun by taking its place, becoming visible in the daytime and putting on the sun's clothes and hairy rays. Moreover, though this might be stretching it a bit far, the side of the moon that we can see during an eclipse appears as a black disk, as it is completely in shadow. During the night, of course, the moon is bright as it reflects the sun's light. What's more, the entire Earth is in relative darkness for the duration of an eclipse, as the moon is blocking out the sun. Well, in the story... J. Isaac's eyes are dim. He can't see Jacob, just as we are in darkness for an eclipse and can't see the normally bright moon. I can only imagine I'm reinventing the wheel here, because once you accept that Jacob and Esau equals moon and sun part, this interpretation of Isaac's blessing seems inescapable to me. Can you tell me if you've heard this before, and if so, could you direct me to where I might be able to read more about it? Well, Sam, I think you got yourself a good theory there. I never thought of it, and I don't think I've ever read that. But if I have, it would be an Ignatz Goldseer's book, Mythology Among the Hebrews, which I think is a reprint is in print. Uh, it's I-G-N-A-Z, uh, G-O-L-D-Z-I-H-E-R. He's a Hungarian uh, scholar and a brilliant one. He deals with the astronomical significance of the myths, and he may well have mentioned this. I uh, don't quite remember. Um, but, um, yeah, this idea of, uh, of, of Jacob, the moon masquerading as the sun by putting on the, the fur, that is really fascinating. René Girard has, uh, I think, in Violence in the Sacred, or maybe it's um, The Scapegoat, I forget which is which sometimes, he says that there must be a, a sacrificial element in this originally, the, the goats being sacrificed to appease the god and so forth. Uh, that's an interesting interpretation, too, but I, I think uh, you're probably right on track there. So Esau the son is out hunting and of course the arrows of the hunter are the rays of the sun and uh, uh, Jacob the moon is impersonating the sun before his father who is uh, the moon I'm uh, sorry the, the sun god as well because uh, his father Abraham was the moon and Abraham's attempt to sacrifice Isaac was the son trying to get rid of his rival the moon and he almost does it but every day uh, the, the the moon appears again after the sun sets I think you got an excellent point that seems right to me I would look up Goldseer on that and see what he has to say uh, but you may have a, your own advance there nice work uh, Michael Goodpaster my fellow Rush pal, 
uh, I'm not sure this is an observation I came with up with on my own or picked up somewhere else and am, some con- and am subconsciously remembering, but in Genesis 12, 10 through 20, which I recently read, it struck me that the broad details of Abram going to Egypt during a plague, getting close to Pharaoh, being mixed up in some sexual impropriety, and God smiting the Egyptians with plagues is very similar to the descent of Israel to Egypt and, of course, the Exodus. Is it likely that this story of Abram was in time extrapolated to apply to the whole nation? Uh, Yeah, uh, Michael, I think so. I deal with this in um, uh, my soon forthcoming book, believe it or not, uh, Moses and Minimalism, and I, I think it is not at all unlikely that this is the origin of the Exodus thing, though it certainly is possible that it is an attempt to sort of give you an isolated, uh, reduced version of the Exodus by making it happen to just a single man and his, his family. Uh, it would make some sense either way. But yeah, I remember when this first struck me some years ago. I think it is uh, a theory that people um, debate and a very good one. I, I'm pleased with your sharp eye. Uh, very often, something will occur to us that um, we've never heard of, and then we find out that somebody has said it long ago, and darn it, uh, nothing new under the sun, but that's really the wrong reaction. Uh, when you you find that out, you should pat yourself on the back for having uh, spontaneously discovered something that biblical critics uh, discovered. Yeah, you're reinventing the wheel, that's okay. Uh, that That speaks well of you. You saw what Wellhausen or whoever saw. Not bad. Uh, let's see. Uh, now, this is uh, from John Hines. Uh, let's see here. Listening to the podcast around uh, April 2012 as to why Christians and Jews were accused of worshiping an ass-headed God. This from Isis Unveiled by Madame Blavatsky. Make of it what you will. I used to have a cat that we called Madame Blavatsky. I don't think she wrote this, but at any rate... The Israelites, he's Russian, the Israelites have been proved to have worshipped Baal, the Syrian Bacchus, offered incense to the Sebasian or Escolapian serpent, Nahashtan, and performed the Dionysian mysteries, that's in second Maccabees. And how could it be otherwise if Typhon was called Typhon Set, and Seth, the son of Adam, is identical with Satan or Satan, and Seth was worshipped by the Hittites. Less than two centuries B.C., we find the Jews either reverencing or simply worshipping the golden head of an ass in their temple, according to Appion. Um, uh, according to Appion, Antiochus Epiphanes carried it off with him, and Zacharias is struck dumb by the uh, apparition of the deity under the shape of an ass in the temple. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, let's see, let's see. Uh, here is... Uh, uh, yeah, okay, uh, f- a footnote to the set or Seth thing. So set or Sutech, S-U-T-E-C-H, 
um, in Rawlinson's history of Herodotus, that is Rawlinson's translation of Herodotus' histories, book two, appendix uh, eight, paragraph 23, standing in the form of an ass, when he was gone out and had a mind to speak thus to the people, woe unto you, who do ye wor- whom do ye worship? Uh, he who had appeared unto them in the temple took away the use of his speech. Afterward, when he recovered it and was able to speak, he declared unto the, this to the Jews, and they slew him. They, the Gnostics, add in their books that on this very account the high priest was commanded by the lawgiver, Moses, to carry little bells, that whensoever he went into the temple to sacrifice, he whom they worshipped, hearing the noise of the bells, might have time enough to hide himself and not be caught in that ugly shape and figure. Now, that part of the quote I'm a little confused here is from Epiphanius in his uh, uh, medicine chest, his book of remedies to all heresies. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm never quite sure what to make of Madame Blavatsky's erudition uh, and the way she connects the dots, but uh, uh, there, there, there's an interesting discussion of this Jewish Typhonianism in Russell Gmirkin, G-M-I-R-K-I-N, I think, or E-N, possibly, his utterly fascinating book, Barosis and Genesis, comma, Manetho and Exodus, where uh, he he um, shows how there was this growing false tradition that Jews worshipped uh, Typhon in the form of an ass-headed deity, because they were confused because Hellenistic writers were applying to Jews. Uh, traditions that they had gotten from earlier groups like the Hyksos, who were not Jews. And so this is really a case of mistaken identity. Um, So I'd refer you to that unbelievably interesting book. Um, He says, among other things, that uh, J, E, D, and P, etc., were combined together by the uh, Jewish scholars in Alexandria who translated the Septuagint. In other words, they didn't just translate it. They put together the first Hebrew uh, Pentateuch, if, and perhaps at a later time, the rest of it, and immediately made a Greek version. Very, very interesting. Yeah, so, John, thanks. I believe uh, in uh, King Jesus, Robert Graves has an interesting thing about Herod appearing with uh, the ass-head mask to... John the Baptist's father, Zechariah the priest, uh, in uh, in the temple, um, the same sort of uh, scene from Herodotus. He really connected a lot of dots in a fascinating way. Derek Krupka has three questions. Oops. Just a second, folks. Uh, let's see now. Where were we? Yeah, right. Uh, this, uh, yeah, it's uh, the first one of these things. I just started to read Matthew, and I found a lot of suspicious things early on 
uh, too many, in fact, that I won't ask about all of them, but some of the bigger ones. Uh, first, boy, I'm having trouble with these bifocals. First off, let us grant this odd genealogy of his. Why would a just Jew not follow Yahweh's law? Uh, I guess this is the thing about uh, Joseph not putting away Mary, even though technically he was supposed to. Uh, then we have King Herod asking the wise men about when the star had appeared, where the author fails to even attempt an answer. Uh, well, you know, uh, the, the it's probably implied that uh, they saw it two years ago, two years before, because uh, if it announced his birth, it must have meant, okay, he's born, not that he's going to be born someday. And uh, the two years, of course, comes from when Herod says, okay, you guys, you know what to do. Go up there and kill every kid up to two years old. So that that implies that that was when. Okay. Um uh, raised up in the church, I was told there were three wise men. Why does it only say they in my King James Version of the Bible? Uh, now, in chapter 2, starting in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Uh, why is Jesus referred to as a child rather than a toddler? Could this mean maybe that there was another young boy there whom either the wise men thought was the king, like in the life of Brian? Uh, can you uh, shed light on how I could still accept that they're referring to Jesus? Well, yeah, of course, the, the reason there is there's no hint of any other character, and they've already prepared you to... Uh, expect a, a, at least a two-year-old Jesus. And uh, I think uh, I think it would be what was it? Technon? Jeez, oh, I forget. Uh, Pice? Um, th that certainly has to mean uh, it was Jesus. and Because, I mean, he's telling you the story of Jesus, and uh, we really, as readers, don't have the right to read in a, an unanticipated character who would never be referred to again. Oh, yeah, the three wise men uh, the uh, It does just say they because uh, the three is a much later inference based on the fact that there, that three gifts are mentioned, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. They think, oh, it must be one apiece, so there must have been three of them. Another early church guess was that there were 12 of them, though it doesn't say that either, nor does it say they were kings, right? This is all just Christmas carol stuff, the, the Midrashic expansion. Uh, let's see. Uh, fourth question I have is, during the temptation of Jesus by Satan, I still don't see Satan as a bad guy. He seems to have been Yahweh's final exam quizzer. What are your thoughts on this outlook? Am I wrong? Is Satan depicted as the adversary of God? It seems to me the angels start being the first cheerleaders to his success. Yeah, that you're right. Uh, th this is... Uh, the Satan, the adversary, doing his job, seeing if Jesus is worthy of his mission, just like Joshua, the candidate for the high priesthood in uh, Zechariah, just like David, just like Job. Yeah, Lord, I know these guys profess loyalty to you, and you seem to like them a whole lot, but how do you know they're not just riding the gravy train here? Let's see where their heart really is, and uh, the Satan sets up a sting operation. 
operation. And uh, some of them fail, some of them pass. And that's the idea here. You're right. Uh, the, uh, the adversary of God business is growing in New Testament times, but it's interesting that Satan is only evil when he is conflated with Beelzebul, a different deity, the lord of the world, meaning a a demon lord uh, who is uh, in charge of the demons all over the world, uh, and with with, uh, implicitly with Ahriman, whose hosts include the the snakes and stuff like that, the powers of the enemy that Jesus speaks of in Luke, or with the chaos dragon Leviathan in the book of Revelation. But unless he is conflated with these originally different characters, even in the New Testament, he has his old role of the accuser of the brethren. Okay, lastly, I found it strange that Peter, Andrew, James, and John all followed Jesus, and they all seemed to be fishermen. Would it be wrong to start thinking that maybe they were either shown something, or could it be that Jesus, who's about to amass a lot of fanfare, has a scheme that they no longer need to do this hard work? I also forgot the Bible doesn't say how old Jesus was, and I don't want to assume anything, but my church told me he was 30. Where'd they get this from? Out of their butt? Thank you again, uh, Uh, They get that out of Luke. It says that when Jesus came to John to be baptized, he was about 30. Uh, So that's the origin of that. Uh, The uh, following Jesus, the fisherman just dumping everything, just as Levi later does at his tax collecting booth. He just leaves it behind. This is a, a very powerful sort of recruitment story it's trying to tell the reader don't you hear you know softly and what is it gentle what is it softly and gently uh, jesus is calling and all that stuff that well that's kind of the idea you're supposed to say hey, maybe i ought to do that if not literally because i uh you know, there's no Jesus to follow around Galilee anymore. Maybe I should be willing to part with everything and follow him should the need arise, such as during a time of persecution. Um, but also, this could be understood, these stories, as a recruitment paradigm for the cynic-like wandering apostles in the early church, uh, and uh, that it's not directed toward everybody. Uh, Second, I recently was conversing with two nice Jehovah's Witnesses, and I brought up um, many problems, how my problems of the miracle stories usually stem from human characters acting in suspicious ways. For example, Moses tells the house of Joseph to mark their posts on the door, and even with nine strange events... uh, um, Every Egyptian ignores this. What are your thoughts on this example of the story? Am I being too hard on the miracle story? Well, if I get you right, I think you're you're quite uh, accurate. The but the, this, in a way, is not a difficulty in the story, because God tells Moses right at the outset, "I'm going to pummel Pharaoh and Egypt." So at the end of the day, when they are utterly defeated, they will know that I am Yahweh. In other words, they'll know who's boss. And that's why you have the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, because the the storyteller is quite aware that he's depicting Pharaoh in, in with, with a kind of 
absolutely unrealistic stubbornness. Egypt is coming down around his ears, and he still will not let the people of Israel go. Yeah, that's why, because God is knocking them down and propping them back up to knock them down again. He's kind of hypnotized Pharaoh. Even when his advisors say, look, give it up. Egypt's going to be destroyed. Let him go. He still won't do it. So actually, the story depends on the unnatural stubbornness of Pharaoh. That's part of the miracle, actually, Derek. Okay, third, uh, also I just finished the Old Testament for the first time. Boy, what a fantastic amount of material. Absolutely intriguing. Hallelujah. They brought up prophecy, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I found prophecy to be inserted by my commentator in my King James Version Study Bible. I found most, if not, this is uh, the 2011 Barber Publishing House version. Must be some study Bible or something. I found uh, most, if not really all, prophecy to be events that were to have happened centuries before Jesus. What are your thoughts about prophecy in a nutshell, and how would you advise me to not want to facepalm myself as each of these Jesus prophecies turns out to be uh, texts twisted to for, for Jesus? Yeah, th- that's what they are. They are taken grossly out of context. Most of the time, we can surmise enough enough about the historical circumstances, like Isaiah 7.14, Behold a virgin or a young woman or whatever shall conceive and bear a son, you call his name Emmanuel, which denotes God with us. Excuse me. Uh, and uh, that it's explicit. This is something to happen in the near future in Isaiah's time, right? It's not a far future thing. So none of them really are like psychics predictions about Jesus, right? Uh, Like JFK is going to be assassinated and bingo, he was. It's not that. And I've uh, beat this drum quite a bit. Krister Stendhal and uh, Richard Longenecker and various scholars, liberal and conservative, have understood now from the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they deal with the prophecies of Haggai, for instance. They have commentaries among the scrolls where they will take a piece of the text and say, now this is really about the teacher of righteousness who who founded their movement and how this would happen to him. And this is about us, the men of the covenant, how we're going to be persecuted and so on. Uh, And uh, this is called Pesher exegesis, uh, literally uh, meaning puzzle solution interpretation. And the, the idea was that these guys knew what the original significance was, perhaps better than we do, but they knew that was over and done with. And uh, they they want they felt sure that if this was inspired scripture, it still had something to teach us. And uh, they figured that the teacher of righteousness, who clued him into this method, was enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and so now they could recognize in retrospect hidden prophecies in well-known familiar texts. Oh, uh, and in the same way, like um, Matthew, who 
could read the Bible in three different languages because he quotes different ones. Uh, he obviously understood what Isaiah seven fourteen was about, but that's not what's interesting to him. He's he's kind of reading this code and says, "Ah, I bet you this is a secret prediction of the miraculous conception of Jesus." He he's as I understand it, based on this Dead Sea Scroll president, he's not plucking the thing out of context, which anybody can see is a stupid thing to do, which proves nothing. His, he's not trying to prove anything to anybody. He's saying, ah, as Christians, we're in the know, and we can now see this was prophesied. Or Isaiah, I'm sorry, Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. He quotes that in connection with the Holy Family going to Egypt and coming back. Uh, and uh, But it's obvious that the, in Hosea, this is a about God calling his son, the people of Israel, out of Egypt into the promised land. Anybody can see that. And Matthew certainly saw it. But the idea is, ah, my son, I wonder if there's some kind of secret prediction about Jesus, the son of God. Maybe he went into Egypt as a child and came out. That's what's going on. So so I think the New Testament writers don't mean what modern apologists mean. They didn't think of them as straightforward predictions like Hal Lindsey and others really throughout Christian history have said, how could those Jews not have recognized Jesus as the Messiah? All these prophecies pointed to him. No, no, you're totally misunderstanding it that way. Uh, they, they weren't surprised. They knew you had to view these passages with the eye of Christian faith before they would seem to speak about Jesus. So they're making an affirmation of faith, not an argument for faith to convince somebody. So I think that it's, it's not exactly text-twisting. I think uh, Gordon Fee and Richard Longenecker, both the evangelical scholars, they both realize this and they say okay i'm willing to say that the old that the new testament writer matthew and so on they were led by the holy spirit so yes all right if they see a hidden prediction it was there but you and i dare not try to do that or we're going to end up like charles manson and hal lindsey reading all kinds of crazy stuff in there that's interesting and and that's uh that's a non-fanatical approach to it even on the part of people, scholars that say, oh, yeah, it is the infallible word of God. They're, they're not out of touch with reality completely. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Alex, I've been curious for a while about a few passages in Acts that refer to the instrument used in Jesus' crucifixion, which is often translated as a tree. I guess dendros, probably. There appears to be no controversy over the fact that Luke and Acts share an author. Well, actually, there is some. But the instrument is called stauros, cross, in Luke 9.23, 14.27, and 23.26, Okay, different word for tree. And uh, Zylon tree in Acts 5.30, 10.39, 13.29. The term crucified, crucify, staurao, is however used in Acts 2.36 and 4.10. What, if anything, can be made of the difference in vocabulary here? Since the author is the same, it seems unlikely to me that what we have here is a different version of the story. Is this literary choice then, or um, 
am I making something out of nothing, and the difference simply appears more drastic in English, cross versus tree, than it is in the original Greek. You could uh, detect different sources and all that, but I think it is just a matter of of, uh, literary variance, so as not to be monotonous. Uh, Luke seems to do that by even describing the same story different ways. Uh, His three accounts of Paul's conversion contradict one another in detail, Apparently not because he was a stupid, forgetful writer, but because he wanted to, as as the Russian formalists would say, defamiliarize the story so you don't get bored and say, oh, this again. Uh, and um, so I think it probably is that. It was a natural metaphor. And uh, and sometimes people were crucified on trees. So it was you know, pretty easy to uh, pass between the two. And uh, though I I do want to mention that the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe Jesus was impaled on a stake and more ancient Persian means of execution, they say, well, the word starao to crucify uh, could mean just put to torment. It's the same root as we have for crucible. Uh, And now that, as far as I know, that's that's possible. I don't know enough. uh, about the history of uh, of of the language to know, but that's always a possibility. Okay. Um, question from Abdel Daoud, first prophet of the Aten. Uh, let's see, I was listening today to a podcast from twenty. 20- where a listener quoted the rationalizer about the Adam and Eve story. On that day you will surely die means on that day your eventual death becomes certain. You dismiss the rationalization. That interpretation is one I'd always assumed during my time as a believer. I've come to realize, especially through your podcast, that the story does cast the serpent as a Prometheus hero figure, and that God is lying. Listening to your comments again today, though, made me realize something that should have been obvious and that I don't believe you've ever touched on. The rationalization is impossible because Adam is already certain to die. His only hope for not dying is to eat of the tree of life, which he has not done. On the day that you eat of the fruit, your death remains as certain as it is now. No, that is not working for me. Uh, See, the only way that the rationalization makes sense is if you read it. On the day that you eat of the fruit, I will withdraw the possibility of eternal life from you by evicting you from the garden, which does in fact happen. But if that's what God means, then he intended to condemn man all along and is every bit as wicked as the lying God of the Prometheus version. May the black sun forever curse you with wisdom. Abdel Daoud, first prophet of the Aten. You know, the, the sun disk, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, it just doesn't make sense to say on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That that means you're you're going to be stuck with the prospect of having to die one day. And it makes even less sense for him to be somehow trying to tell the man and the woman 
that uh, he's going to cut off access to the tree of life because in the narrative that doesn't make any sense because they could have just gone ahead and eaten it uh, and and conf- and, and uh, just uh, prevented God from doing what he wanted to do. It seems pretty clear. He's telling him, you're going to drop dead. It's poison, and it's not true. So, yeah, very, very good. Aten prophet. Lachlan says... Uh, there are no stupid questions, but there are inquisitive idiots, and I am one of them. Well, I doubt that. For years I've wondered if Nephilim had anything at all, all to do with the Norse Niflheim. I may not be a Christ mythicist, but I'm certainly a mythicist when it comes to giants. I'm going on the assumption that between vowel movements, oh brother, what not, the non-anglicized terms are uh, probably much further apart. Yeah, I, I think so too, but that is really great. That being said, Jewish polytheism and Norse polytheism both come from a hypothesized proto-Indo-European pantheon. Are there other similar-sounding giant myths that you're aware of? Uh, Is there any known connection between the giant Nephilim and the Niflheim where the frost giants lived? Uh, the frost giants lived in Jotunheim, didn't they? Uh, Niflheim is the land of mists, come to think of it, I think. Right, and uh, I'd have to look that up, but I think Niflheim is not the world of the giants. But this bears some more investigation, Lachlan. I think that's really, really fascinating. Um, 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 David S. in Seattle. I'm currently reading Gnosticism in Corinth by Walter Schmidtholz at the suggestion of your higher critical reading list. I'm enjoying the book quite a bit, although it is difficult at times due to Schmidtholz's style of not translating quotations in Greek. Yikes, yeah. In the book, Schmidtholz discusses the infamous 1 Corinthians 1, 12-13 passage in the New American Standard. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And my question to you is what you think of Schmidtholz's interpretation of this passage. I would state it in my own words as, Now some of you are saying, I am of the apostles, and some say, I am of Christ. So Schmidtholz is saying that Paul here speaks only against those who are saying the final version, I am of Christ. He reads this as the proclamation of Gnostics in Corinth who felt that they possessed the pneuma or pneuma or pneuma, however you want to pronounce it, spirit of Christ and were above those who could not or did not engage in ecstatic glossolalia and visions. Paul's response here, per Schmittals, is intended to say, how can the spirit of Christ be only in you troublemakers and not in those who recognize the apostles? Uh, Schmittals emphasizes that the Gnostics think of the Christ as an intrinsic property belonging only to pneumatics, the spiritual ones, whereas Paul believes that the pneuma uh, is itself a gift from Christ and not something pre-existing. This means that the dismembered primal man who now exists in pneumatics waiting to be awakened, Paul therefore argues, passed his opponents not understanding their fundamental claim. 
I've heard you speak before and read in your book, The Amazing Colossal Apostle, that you yourself interpret this passage as a relic of the existence of rival savior figures during this period who were eventually consolidated by orthodoxy as part of the Christian movement. Would you say then that the string of arguments against Gnostics in Corinth is a compilation of interpolated orthodoxy at a later period? And what do you make of um, Schmittals' reading of 1 Corinthians 1? 12. Well, David, of course, uh, Schmittals is being speculative, and so am I. They're right. There's no way to be sure of this. But I have a problem with what he's, he's doing there because it, it sure seems grammatically that the four are on a par Cephas, Paul, Apollo, and Christ. Uh, and uh, so I tend to, like uh, even Bauer tried to reduce this. He was trying to say that, well, Cephas and uh, Apollos and all that, they're, they're really the same thing as Jewish Christianity. And I, I think that's oversimplifying the problem. It seems to me the only way to give full weight to this structure of this statement is to say that there are four factions uh, and that somebody is... Uh, proclaiming adherence to Christos in the same way others are to Paul, Apollo, which is what it is in Greek, uh, and Cephas. Uh, so that I've got a problem with, but I do think that Schmidt also is quite correct in seeing Gnosticism as, uh, as the central thing being polemicized against in 1 Corinthians. Like Schmidt also, I think that 1 Corinthians is a patchwork quilt uh, though he thinks it's all Pauline fragments, very much like the Gospel of John, that it just got messed up along the way. And when somebody tried to put it back together, it just sort of is a disaster. Um, and uh, But I think th- the fragments really are, t- tend to be interpolated passages to correct one another, that we have... Um, Paul saying, I didn't rely on rhetoric and wisdom when I preached to you. On the other hand, I did uh, among the perfect. And I think you've got, or should you eat meat offered to idols or not? Should you have women prophesying and praying in public or not? It seems to me you've got like, like a kind of an anthology of different Paulinists arguing one another all in Paul's name to pull rank. Uh, I just don't think that uh, the uh, that one passage fits into that, nor need it. There are various things going on in 1 Corinthians. I love Schmittals. He's, he was brilliant. I regard it as quite a coup that I got the great uh, Schmittals to write an article for the Journal of Higher Criticism some years ago. He's gone now, sadly. What a brilliant, brilliant scholar. Um, I heard uh, Morton Smith refer to him as the most radical of the Bolt maniacs. Well, that's okay by me. Though he uh, scoffs at the Christ myth theory, or did, or that uh, the idea that Paul didn't write the uh, epistles. I mean, he's he wasn't going to go that far. But his even if you are a radical critic, so was he for sure. Right, uh, let's see, this uh, is from the good Dr. Barton, the famous ichthyologist, as you'll see, uh, uh, from uh, The Creature Walks Among Us. Anyway, I was rereading the Gospel of Luke 1 and 3, something I haven't done 
uh, in years and noticed a couple of maybe interesting points. One, John the Baptist in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 doesn't acknowledge any kinship to Jesus despite the extensive uh, Gospel of Luke 1 to establish the fact, that fact. Like, so Luke 1 makes a big deal out of the fact that Jesus and John are cousins, but when Jesus shows up, there's no recognition. Is it possible that the John of the Gospel of Luke 1 and John the Baptist of Luke 3 are not the same Johns and that their conflation was accidental or half accidental? I think they're supposed to be the same guy, but they come from different uh, stages or factions of the Jesus movement that Q had the passage where John in prison hears the works of Jesus and says, hey, maybe this is the the Christ or the coming one I've been uh, preaching. Uh, Why don't you go and ask him? That was in Q. There was no... no, uh, I think the baptism story is based on Mark, not Q. And uh, uh, so that uh, when Luke combined Mark and Q he created, uh, well, so did Matthew. Uh, they created a, a gross contradiction that uh, how, I mean, if if he had uh, already, well, I'm sorry, it wasn't Luke. Matthew created the gross contradiction because he has John know who Jesus was. He says, uh, what's a nice savior like you doing in a place like this? I need to be baptized by you, right? Uh, that's uh, that's Matthew. Matthew has a huge problem. If he, if John has already recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. How can it be, not that he doubts what he once believed, once he's in jail, but that he suddenly has a glimmer of hope. Hey, I'm hearing these amazing stories. Could this be the guy? Uh, it, obviously, he, he hasn't uh, heard of Jesus, didn't know he's related to him because he wasn't. Luke made that up to connect the nativities of John and Jesus so as to co-opt and win over the Johannine sectarians. Okay, uh, two, the, gospel, the John of the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, seemed to have been born to a prophet I'm sorry, seems to seem to have been born to be a prophet and herald of Jesus. Is it possible the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 was a later interpolation intended to establish the credential of an earlier uh, of an early Gospel writer named John? Uh, it even occurs to me that uh, there might not have been uh, that they might not have been referring to the text that we know as the Gospel of John, but to a now lost Gospel of John, and that the current Gospel of John was written with the intent, written late with the intent of recreating a Gospel that the author knew had been lost. I, I don't really see any reason to think that, though it certainly is possible that the uh, the first couple of chapters have been added. Uh, Conselman thought that, uh, and uh, though I think it, it to say that they're original fits his theory better. Actually, um, that uh, there's a pre-Jesus period of Israel, uh, he would have included it to, to demonstrate that. Um, but I do think that canonical Luke is an expansion of the Ur Lucas which the Marcionites used, and so that it was an addition to tie Jesus in with the Old Testament uh, more securely. But I, I don't really 
I think this reads an awful lot in. This is what I would call pure speculation. Though I'm always interested in any speculations. Alternatively, is it possible that the Gospel of John was written specifically to capitalize on the reference to a prophet, uh, not Baptist, John, in the Gospel of Luke 1? In rereading John 1, this John does bear some resemblance to Luke 1's John, but not John the Baptist. Of course, he doesn't baptize Jesus in uh, the Gospel of John, though he is baptizing everybody else. I really don't see a difference there. Um, not that this is really my area, but I can't say I've heard these ideas before. Have you for folks <laughs> heard any scholars dealing with this point? Yeah, well, interesting. Okay. Uh, this from our old pal uh, uh, I think this is probably other one and I think I'm gonna uh, yeah stop with this one but let's do it it's always great to hear from this guy and let's see uh, let me get back to the watch your gov well, I felt I had to stick me oar in after a recent show in which some geezer was talking about his China plate, his mate, from East London and asked you whether the Gnostics had something similar to Cockney rhyme and slang so that they could talk to each other without nobody being none the wiser. I must say that I was surprised by your answer, Gov. I would have thought that a bloke with your kind of knowledge must have known that Cockney rhyming slang was invented by Cockney Gnostics in the ancient world. It all happened like this. Most people think that in the ancient world, the Gnostics had their main base in Alexandria, but that ain't really true. In fact, their main centre of operations was a district of good old Britannia called Londinium Oriens. Blimus! Trouble was, they was being persecuted, so they'd had to, they had to come up with a special way of communicating, and so they invented rhyme and slang. Here's a few examples of what were, they was using. Uh, lock tight and bostic equals gnostic. Hallucinatory psychosis equals gnosis. Mingle and merge equals demiurge. Euripides and Oma equals Pleroma. Laurel and Ardy equals Nagamardi. Of course, in the grand tradition, I used to drop the actual rhyme and element so that nobody could guess what I was talking about. Picture the scene. A visiting merchant from Gaul is just leaving an early Christian worship service when he's approached by a couple of furtive-looking geezers in claret and blue togas. Hang on a minute, Squire. We couldn't help noticing you was displaying a certain amount of special awareness in there. You wouldn't happen to be a Loctite, would you? Blessed with the old hallucinatory? A reader of the books from Laurel? Anyway, Gov, now we've managed to clear that up, I'll move to me question. I this is great. Uh, actually, I've just realized that you never answered one I sent you at the beginning of this year, so here it is again cut down a bit. 
You know, I got to pause. I have heard from a couple of people lately that I uh, must never have gotten their questions. And I uh, that worries me a bit. I Granted, I get a kind of a backlog of questions, so it may be a while before you hear it. But if, if you don't hear it for a while, please contact me as these people did and resubmit them. I don't just skip questions. So uh, please, uh, you know, if, if that's happening, let me know about it. Okay, as usual at Christmas, the media over here fished at what some academic had to say about one aspect of the story. It's usually a load of cod swallop, but this time around, the geese are concerned, may have a point. Some theologian from Nottingham has claimed that old Luke never meant to say that Jesus was born in a stable. He points out that a word which usually gets translated into the inn is actually the same as one what's used for the old upper room during the Last Supper, Cataluma. He also points out that in them days, people used to keep their animals in the house. So what Luke means to say is that there weren't no room for old Joey boy and Molly in the part of the house uh, used by the people. So they had to kip down on a slightly lower pot with the ox and ass, etc. The story don't actually mention a stable, only a manger. When you think about it, it would be a bit strange for a poor bloke like Joe to be knocking on the door at a local boozer pub asking for a room. And if his family was originally from Bethlehem, you might expect some of his distant relatives at least to still be living there. And I suppose they'd be, I suppose they'd be expected to let him stay at a place, no doubt along with various other relatives as well. It's a bit disillusioned, Gov, I don't mind telling you. So much for a special atmosphere at a traditional nativity scene where the tranquility is broken only by the odd moo. Instead, you've got a house full of geezers snoring and tripping over each other uh, on the way out to the Karzai toilet and, and all that. By the way, I notice that most versions of the Bible have stuck with the inn, but the New International Version says she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. It may be more accurate, but it don't have the same ring to it somehow. Anyway, Gov, what do you reckon about this Cataluma business? Has this theologian geezer got a good point? Cheers, Paul the other one. Uh, P.S. Claret and Blue are the colours of East London football team West Ham United. I need a reality check. I've been writing my book about the structure of original... Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. This is a different one. I didn't leave enough space. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I don't, I've never heard that. I'm uh, assuming he's correct. But what I have read is that uh, in the end, uh, really... Uh, no, no, I'm thinking of something else. In the manger uh, could be and often is translated as out in the open, uh, so that uh, which would mean they're not in any uh, any in at all. Uh, so uh, it's similar to the Greek novel Daphnis and Chloe, where Daphnis, uh, sort of a nature boy type, is born uh, out in the on the open ground. That that's a possibility, but I'm sure he's right. Uh, that that would make sense, and um, I don't know that you could. I don't think there's decisive evidence. Uh, either way, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, it's no doubt uh, quite likely. 
Yeah, very interesting. I wasn't familiar with that. See, I always learn something on the Bible Geek, and hope you do too. Um, let's see, I guess that's it for tonight, uh, but I'll be back with you maybe tomorrow, who knows, uh, for another exciting Bible Geek. I'd like to thank those who have uh, generously given to, uh, uh, to the Price family, and i uh, sure to appreciate it. Things are tight, but I know they are with you too, so good luck to both of us. I'll be seeing you soon, in any case, on the Bible Geek. Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson.